Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Chad Helmer. I have the privilege of working and serving here with crew at Ohio University and across Southeast Ohio. And I'm so glad you've decided to join us tonight. And I'll tell you, we didn't have an icebreaker tonight. Often we'll have an icebreaker, a fun game we'll play. And so, so I thought I'd start us off with something a little bit different and a little lighthearted. Um, optical illusions. This seems random. Um, but hey... <laughs> I don't know if this will work on a screen, but hey, take a look at the middle for a second. Does it raise your hand if it looks like it's moving? All right, all right, this works, this works. Now, I assure you it's not an animation, nothing is moving, but yet somehow when you look at it, it's doing something weird, right? Messing with your mind a little bit, a little strange. Um, Here's another one. You're like, oh, I've seen this one before. Well, how many legs does it have then if you've seen it before? Who says four legs? Who says five legs? It's a giraffe. How many are too scared to answer because they don't know? <laughs> um, the right answer is apparently four, but I can't see it. So, I, so <laughs> um, hey, one, one more for you. One more for you. Raise your hand if you see a duck. Raise your hand if you see a rabbit. Okay, okay, all right. Well, hey, um, I'll tell you what, um, I love these because here's what it reminds us of. It reminds us that perspective on something really matters. And sometimes we can look at something and we think we see one thing, but actually there's something else there if we take a minute and look more carefully. And so... um, Tonight, many of you will know that we're continuing to walk our way through, through the New Testament book of 1 Peter, and um, tonight what I'm going to invite us to do is to consider the original context of 1 Peter. And we're going to look at, some, at a couple of passages in 1 Peter tonight, and here's what I want to name. As we look at them, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to look at it and you're going to say, that passage is a duck. And what I want to invite you to do tonight is to slow down with me And allow me, if you will, to help me suggest that it might look different than that. That it might actually be a rabbit that you couldn't see. Okay? Um, Because we're continuing through 1 Peter. Um, We're we're working our way through a series called Living as Foreigners in a Familiar World. And what we're going to see in 1 Peter and what we've been looking at the last several weeks is that while we're comfortable and familiar with life here in this world, this world is actually not our home. And for those who are in Christ, if you would describe yourself as a follower of Christ, we're actually foreigners and outsiders to this world. We're journeying toward a future home and a future hope that we have in heaven. And everything in the letter of 1 Peter is written to help us live in the tension between living in this world but not being of this world. Okay, and so I'm just going to shoot straight with you tonight. We're going to look at some tough passages, okay? And I'll tell you what, in a series like this, we, we could have just easily skipped over them. And I'll tell you what, um, even today I was wondering, maybe we should have. <laughs> uh, maybe by the end of the night you'll say, you know what, you should have skipped over those. But they're in the Bible, and it seemed like the most responsible thing to do uh, and the most helpful thing to do would be to look at them together, even if you're going to look at them and you're going to think they look like a duck, okay? 
So the problem with these passages, and part of what makes them so challenging, is that we are so quick to read them through our 21st century eyes, through our modern eyes. And when we do that, they look one way. But what I want you to do is slow down with me, even if you've only ever been told the passage is one thing, and and be patient with me and let me try as best as I'm able to help you see these from the context of the first century ancient world taking place in Asia Minor. We've covered the context of this several times now uh, through the series, but uh, Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering for being Christians. They're being persecuted for their faith, Um, and this is in the first century. This is in Asia Minor today, what is Turkey, uh, modern Turkey. And uh, when we begin to view these passages through that historical and social context, I want you to see it looks more like a rabbit, okay? But I'll be honest with you, I'm nervous, Okay, because these are tough passages. And so I want to ask you to be patient with me. I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord to help me and to help us. And then we'll dive in, okay? Father, I need you. Ask that you would help me to communicate clearly tonight. Father, I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear what it is you want us to hear in these passages. And Lord, would you remove any distractions? Would you help us to be slow to jump to conclusions? Would you give us eyes to see things maybe in a new way and in a fresh way that we haven't seen them before? And Lord, would you speak to us by your Spirit? Help me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Here's what we're looking at tonight. There are really four different instructions going on in this passage that we're going to look at in 1 Peter. And here's what they are. There are instructions for how Christian citizens are to relate to non-Christian governing authorities that are potentially oppressive. We're going to look at instructions for how Christian slaves are to relate to non-Christian masters who are potentially oppressive. We're going to look at instructions for how Christian wives are to relate to non-Christian husbands who do not obey the word of God. And we're going to look at instructions for how Christian husbands are to relate to their wives. Who's nervous with me? (laughs) Okay, all right. So, That's where we're headed. But here's the most important thing, and I'm committed to always saying the most important thing up front. Here's the most important thing. All four of those instructions in in 1 Peter are united together by how the whole section begins in chapter 2, verse 13. And here's what it says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The point in all four of these, spoiler, is that these are all instructions for the Lord's sake, it says. This is about our Christian witness. It's about the idea that we live as representatives of Christ to a watching world. Okay? That's the most important thing, and it's what Peter is trying to communicate to his audience who's suffering persecution for their faith. He cares about how a world sees them. And so how we live and act, even in the face of persecution and suffering, as these Christians were experiencing, influences what others think about Christ. And that's the whole reason that Peter is giving these kinds of instructions in these four different cases. So we're just going to walk through them. This is a different kind of talk. I'm just going to explain the text. And then when we wrap up, we'll have a couple of applications just for us as well. Okay, so here's where we're headed. Um, Number one, for the sake of your Christian witness... 
citizens be subject to every human institution. Here's what it says, beginning in 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and this is over the Roman Empire, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We could say a lot about this. I don't have as much time, and I think you want me to talk about the other ones. And so um, the only thing I'll say about this is, as followers of Jesus, we're called to live under the law. We're just called to be obedient to the law. And unless it calls us to, unless the law forces us to violate our Christian convictions, um, we're supposed to live under the law. It's that straightforward because, notice again the emphasis on witness, that this is for the Lord's sake and, and this is to silence those who would accuse the Christians of being all kinds of problem makers or troublemakers. The intent here is to live under the law. That's the easy one. Let's look at the next one. Number two, for the sake of your Christian witness, servants or slaves, and I'll unpack this in a minute, be subject to your masters. Here's what the text says. This one's longer, so hang with me here. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust masters. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, you, if when, you are, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? What credit is that? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he tells us what the example is. Jesus uh, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Straightforwardly here, for the sake of your Christian witness, Peter is telling servants or slaves to be subject to your masters. He says, be a good servant, show respect, be gracious to your master, even if he's unjust. And if you're going to suffer as a servant or a slave, suffer for doing good, not for doing wrong or evil. Now, and you know, I love that he, that he anchors that in what Christ has done, um, who suffered unjustly. But we know, we know that in the pre-Civil War South, during black slavery, slave masters used passages just like this one to shame and guilt slaves into obedience and compliance. In a passage like this and others like it were we conveniently weaponized to maintain the status quo, status quo of slavery on plantations in the South. We just know that that happened. You've probably seen movies where passages like this are quoted uh, to slaves to keep them in line. But here's what's interesting to me about this passage. Peter isn't writing to masters saying, hey, you should, um, you should uh, make sure your slaves stay in line. That's not what he's doing. He's actually writing to the slaves or servants. And had he written to masters, um, he probably would have had very clear instructions for how to treat them. But he didn't say anything to masters. And I think there are some reasonable assumptions that we could make why he doesn't. 
Now, we can't say for sure. It's speculation, no doubt. But um, Peter is writing to Christians in Asia Minor who are suffering for their faith. And it's reasonable to suspect that Peter can't conscience the thought, he can't conceive of the thought of a Christian slave master or at least one who's treating his slaves poorly. And so he doesn't address them. He doesn't imagine something like that going on, and so he doesn't address it. He's concerned with how Christians relate to non-Christians. Remember, that's the whole point of this whole section. And so Peter's interested in how Christian slaves relate to their non-Christian masters. And now you might be thinking, all of this, nonetheless, is still an implicit endorsement of slavery, but I'd beg to differ for a couple of reasons. One, ancient slavery, the kind that Peter is addressing here, was not identical to pre-Civil War American slavery of black people. It just wasn't. It wasn't homogenous. Slavery existed on a spectrum in the first century. And no doubt, some of it was just as brutal and undignified as what we imagine when we imagine slavery. Um, But the Greek word that's being translated servant or slave here, depending on your translation, is the word doulos. And the reason it's translated servant or slave is because in some cases, this was just a domestic agreement. In some cases, this was just basic employment. Um, much, of what, much of it was also more dignified, a, a sort of social arrangement for people to work their way out of debt. Um, so some of your translations have opted to say the word servant because what we shouldn't do is immediately assume when we read this something identical to pre-Civil War South America, America in the South. Um, So that's part of the reason. The other thing is that Peter's primary concern here isn't about overthrowing unjust social and political structures. That might be what we wanted him to write about. We're like, oh, that would have been been really helpful, Peter. Um, But it's not what he writes about. God had a different plan for the audience of this letter. Peter's primary concern is how to encourage the Christians to live in a way that represents Christ while they're being persecuted, no matter their social status or standing. And so he wants them to represent Christ well. And then Peter isn't arguing that Christians should just accept the status quo. That's not the argument. That's not what's going on here. What he's arguing for is that we represent Christ and that that is of utmost importance above everything else, that our witness matters, okay? And so that's, part of, that's the big picture of what's going on here. Let's move on. It gets worse, friends. It gets more difficult. Are you with me? For the sake of your Christian witness, number three, wives, be subject to your husbands. Oh, oh, there's the duck. That is definitely a duck. I hear you. Hey, hang with me here. Peter's not drawing a duck here. If you want to see it as a duck, then uh, you're welcome to. But I want to actually suggest that if we try to put ourselves in the socio-historical context of the first century of what these Christians are experiencing in Asia Minor, this passage actually includes good, good news for women both then and now. And so let me read the passage. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry or clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." 
Whew. Um, Earlier, I joked that you might throw fruit at me just for reading it. But it's there in the Bible, and so let's talk about it, okay? Let's talk about it. Um, Peter is very simply calling wives to live with Christian character so that when their non-Christian husbands see their character, they might be one to Christ. And so Peter then goes on. um, Well, maybe some things to talk about first. Some things to talk about first. Just naming. It'd be really easy, and this is what you're seeing with the duck, right? It'd be easy to read this passage as an endorsement of misogyny or even domestic violence. And no doubt, just like the previous passage, this one historically has been weaponized to keep women in dangerous situations of domestic abuse, to keep them bound up in their homes or denigrate them and erase their dignity and agency as a human being. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that what Peter is actually doing with this text? Is that what he's trying to accomplish? Because I don't think Peter is a misogynist, and we'll see more why here in a second. I don't think he's trying to keep women under the oppressive thumb of men, even though that's the first look. There's a rabbit here. He's simply calling wives to live with Christian character so that their non-Christian husbands will want to follow Jesus. And then he goes on to describe what that Christian character looks like. He says, respectful and pure conduct. He says, And then he goes on, and this is what I think is beautiful in three, in verses three and four. He says, what's on the inside matters more than what's on the outside. He says, beauty is on the inside, looking beautiful on the outside doesn't matter if there isn't character. And then he goes on to name some things that were probably valued in husband-wife relationships in the first century. These were just values that were there. A gentle and quiet spirit, he says. But that's, that doesn't mean silence. He doesn't say silence. No, he's contrasting this with being contentious or argumentative or critical, traits that he knows are not going to win over non-Christian husbands. He's not saying women can't speak or can't have their own opinions. Um, But again, if you want to read the text and be like, well, that's definitely what he's saying, you can think that. Um, But that's not how his audience would have read it. And I don't think it's how we should read it either. Remember, his primary concern is with Christian witness and with representing Christ well. And there was a particular way that that was envisioned in the first century. So this is good news for all of us, women and men alike, because it means our good looks aren't going to win people to Christ, our character will, and I'm especially grateful for that. And so so, um, it's more about character. And, And this is the theme of the whole Bible in some ways, right? The theme of the whole Bible, I mean, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs at one point because they look really shiny and nice on the outside, but on the inside, they're tombs. They're full of dead bones is what he suggests. And then verse 6, I mean, I think it's interesting how it ends. Uh, Not to fear anything that's frightening. Um, He's calling women to be courageous, and I think that's a good thing. But in a world where Christian wives are trying to win their husbands over to Christ, Peter's simply giving practical instructions for how to represent Christ to unbelieving husbands. And in many ways, it's not that different than what the Apostle Paul said, Romans 12, talking to all Christians, where he just says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He's giving a picture of living at peace and living in a way that a husband would want to follow Jesus if he doesn't, okay? All right, last one. Verse seven, on to the husbands. Husbands, uh, well, so number four, for the sake of your Christian witness, husbands, be a good husband. And then verse seven, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Friends, when I read that like a duck uh, and I see a duck, it makes me angry. 
right? Maybe some of you feel like, how, like, but it's in the Bible. And so we have to ask, what did Peter mean when he said this? He's saying, husbands, live in an understanding way and show honor to the women um, in your lives, to your wives. And here's what it's actually going on, I think. One way to paraphrase this is Peter is saying things like domestic abuse and violence and exploitation of your wife just because you can doesn't make it acceptable. Again, the language, it catches us off guard. But friends, we know, we know that the cases of domestic abuse where women are beating up husbands, those happen, but they're pretty rare. Okay, we know the majority of cases of domestic abuse are where husbands are taking advantage of their strength over women. And Peter won't have it. It's not acceptable. And he's saying, look, uh, he's saying, look, uh, he's not saying anything condescending or belittling or undignified about women. In the same way, I mean, I was thinking about this earlier. Like, my wife doesn't feel belittled when I have to sort of be the one who opens the salsa jar, you know, um, that she can't get the lid off of. Um, she's not offended by our biological differences any more than I'm offended that uh, Donnie is taller than me, and I'd like to be as tall as Donnie. But I'm not offended by that. Um, the reality is Peter here is giving a stern warning to husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, not taking advantage of their strength, um, He's exhorting husbands to be understanding and respectful. And I think what he's doing here is actually an act of dignifying, respecting, and protecting women when he commands husbands to live in this way rather than abusing their, their strength. And notice uh, why. It's, it, he seems to be imagining that their wives are Christians. Uh, he says, you know, they're co-heirs with you in this. And so, um, so, friends, in all four of these, we could read them as patriarchal. We could read them in, as ways of sort of uh, reinforcing institutions of slavery or implicitly endorsing them. But that's not what Peter's accomplishing. It's not what he's trying to do. What Peter wants to do is that no matter where we find ourselves socially and culturally, that we're living in a way that represents Christ, trying to win others to Jesus. And so there are some takeaways for us here, okay? First, it's one thing to understand a passage in its socio-historical context, and it's another thing to critique how a passage has been used and abused. And there's no doubt about the fact that these passages have been used and abused. They've been used in ways that God never intended, that Peter never intended, and that's just not acceptable. But what I want to invite you to tonight is to see the passages properly so they can be applied to our lives in the way Peter and ultimately God intended rather than being weaponized for abuse. The other thing is um, this, these passages are here in the Bible and they were written for us. Um, and just because people have abused them doesn't mean that we don't have anything to learn from them. Uh, we aren't going to quit using steak knives at dinner just because someone has used a steak knife uh, to harm someone else. Um, and so just because people have used the passages to harm others doesn't mean we should just abandon them outright. There's something here for us to learn. And there's a difference between using something how it was intended to be used and using it to hurt others. And I hope that, and if there's anything I've said, I hope that that's been really clear. Because I think there are really important instructions here for us today. And I'll just be brief about these. But the biggest one is how we represent Christ in our lives under the law, at work, as students, and in family relationships is really, really important. The culture is not always hospitable to, to us following Jesus. But it doesn't mean 
that we don't have to represent him well, even in a culture that's not hospitable to us. Instead, we're called to represent the one that we claim to follow. And this is where earlier in in 21 and 22, Peter tells us, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example to follow. And the example is that he committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when we follow Christ's example, others want to follow us. And that's what Peter wants for his audience, for his readership, and once for us. Not to reinforce problems, not to reinforce stereotypes, not, not to be abusive, uh, not to use these passages in ways that are, uh, that are malicious or contrary to the way they were intended to be used. But he wants us to represent Christ well, no matter where we find ourselves historically and socially. And then lastly, even in a hostile environment where it isn't easy to be a Christian, we're called to faithfully represent Christ to the world. We live for eternity, not for the moment of trial and suffering. We live for Christ, not for our own comfort and convenience. And we live as servants of the King of kings and Lord of lords. So that means insofar as it's possible for us, for his sake, we should represent him well whenever we can. And that's what's going on here. So I want to pray to close, but the last thing I want to say is... um. We really, want, we really wanted to be faithful to sort of addressing the passage. We could have skipped over it and you'd come across it in 1 Peter and say, okay, well, that's strange and I don't know what to make of it. Um, but I want to say if you have ongoing questions or you even just want to talk about it or even if you're angry, um, I, I'd love to, to talk with you about it. I'd love to hear your questions um, and continue to process with you. But um, that's the passage where we're at tonight. Let me pray. Lord, we want to represent you as best as we can wherever you have us as students, as, as children of parents, in relationships with others, in all the different relationships we have, Lord, as citizens under a government, we want to honor and represent you well. And we're grateful, Lord, for these passages that are confusing and sometimes have been put to misuse, Lord. We're grateful that you remind us that you've, that you've purchased us with the blood of your son, Jesus. And so we are reminded tonight uh, that we belong to him, And we want to honor you, Lord, in all that we say and do. Help us to be faithful witnesses that represent Christ well. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the 180 Podcast, a production of Crew in Southeast Ohio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like, a share, or leave an encouraging comment, and that will go a long way toward helping others hear about the podcast. The podcast isn't the only thing that we do. Whether you're a student living on campus or if you're still at home studying virtually, we'd encourage you to check us out on social media to hear more about what's going on. You can follow us on Instagram at crew at OU, or to learn more about who we are and what we do, head over to our website, crew at OU.org. We'd encourage you if you visit the site to complete our involvement form to get more connected to all the things that are happening. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next Thursday for another episode of the 180 Podcast.